0: My sincere thanks to those of you who've been spreading the word about this show. This is typically the slowest part of the year, but for some reason, over the last three months, the audience has almost doubled. And this is without any press, and the only thing I can attribute it to is word of mouth, just you guys telling your friends about it. And I just wanted to say up front that I really appreciate it, and please continue spreading the word. And to those of you who are new, welcome aboard. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Jim White. Jim is a singer and a songwriter who lives in Athens, Georgia. You can find out everything you need to know about Jim at jimwhite.net. I first met Jim when our friend Caroline Herring put together some gigs and, uh, got us all three to play together, which is a very, very good time. And, uh, I instantly took to Jim. I really like him. He's a wonderful person. He's a beautiful man. Very smart, creative, and very strange in all the best ways. You might have seen the movie Searching for Wrong-Eyed Jesus. If you haven't, I strongly recommend that you look it up. It's an interesting look at the southern part of the United States, the small towns, and the ir- religious extremism that takes place there. And there's people like the handsome family and David Johansson in this film. And Jim is your tour guide, showing you all the strange and wonderful parts of the South. But Jim and I got together when he was in Nashville. We met up in a hotel room. There's a lot to this, and it's all one big long story that comes to a wonderful conclusion. I'm going to get right to it. It's Jim White.
1: I was. Uh, I grew up in the South, um, and didn't fit in here. My family was a Yankee family. They moved me here when I was little, so I was like the blue people of Kentucky. I was ostracized. I was that Yankee boy, and uh, it was tough in in the in the '60s. Um, I was I was somewhat genteel and uh, had a different accent, and I'd been listening to the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean because that's where I came from. You know. At, I was four or five years old when I moved to the South, and my sisters all love music. So I was brought to this place, and it was real interesting. You couldn't go much more different in America than from pop Southern California culture to the armpit of the South, Pensacola, Florida. Uh, My dad was a military man. That's why we ended up there. Uh, And and, and when I got there, I tried to make friends with people, but it was all white trash kids that uh, preferred to beat me up than uh, do anything. My best friend, first time uh, you know, I, t- I talked to him, I think I was leaving school in the second grade. And I was walking outside and I kicked a-, a tire. It had been raining. And he was st- standing there, tough little white trash kid. And he said, what are you pissing in that tire for, boy? <laughs> and me being a polite Yankee kid, I said, well, actually, I'm not pissing in the tire. I'm-, I'm just kicking it. And he said, you calling me a liar? And he jumped on me and beat the hell out of me. And then when he was done beating the hell out of me, he said, hey, you want to come over to my house and watch Dark Shadows? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, sure. <laughs> over we went. He became my best friend. So, you know, c- you know coming to the South, what, what happened to me was that, you know, I grew up in it, but I wasn't of it. Uh, I, was, I was different than it. So I lived there, you know, most of my life never feeling at home, uh, but always interested in the culture going on around me. Eventually, I just decided I had to leave. And, and I went and I traveled and I did all these crazy things. And I ended up being a, a cab driver in New York. And my, my mental state was kind of deteriorating. I, I I looked like Travis Bickle at one point. You know, I had a mohawk and was driving a cab and was yelling at people and crashing cabs into walls and stuff. And at the end of, of pushing that to its logical end, pushing, w- will I go crazy or will I stay sane? Uh, I had this Cataclysmic uh, health crisis where I was dying and didn't have health care and uh, didn't know what to do and was clinically depressed and, and I went home to die um, in in North Florida and while I was laying there in bed I realized that, you know it, it takes a long time to die you know you, you, it just <laughs> doesn't just happen in a minute uh, and so I got bored and you know, my stepdad was a he was a cool guy he, uh, airplane pilot mechanic. You know, do-it-yourself guy from Knoxville, real, real rural, but real interesting. And I, I'd, I'd given him a book of bluegrass songs because I knew he was from Kentucky. He played guitar. He never seemed interested in it. And finally, I asked him, you know, well, how come you're not playing any of those bluegrass songs? And he said, Well, I don't take the bluegrass too much. And I said, Well, Bill, what do you, what do you listen to? And he said, Yeah. Well, I like that progressive jazz. <laughs> and I said, good Lord, what do you play progressive jazz on? And he went to the closet and he said, well, I haven't played it in 30 years, but he pulled out this, the ugliest guitar, electric guitar I've ever seen, it had four pickups on it. It was called Prestige. And he said, I know you like music. Why don't you take this guitar? And I was so sick, I could hardly walk. And the idea of having something to pass the time sounded pretty good. And that's I sat in that, laying in bed, waiting to die, writing songs on my first record. Um, I didn't know it was going to be on my first record. It was just therapy. I was writing songs, howling out at the universe, saying, you know, why am I stuck here? You know, why isn't this working out? Why isn't anything working out? I'm trying so damn hard. So I wrote all those songs, and, and I had a friend who was in the film business He he uh, came and visited me because he was trying to talk me out of dying. Basically, he knew I was shy about doing anything in front of people, so he was a surprise visit. He came sneaking up to my house. He was going to say surprise, and uh, I was playing that weird guitar with a little weird little amp. And he heard outside, so he didn't say anything. He just listened. He sat there for thirty minutes, like that's my first concert because I always did everything kind of secretly. And at the end of thirty minutes. Uh, I was done playing the songs that I knew how to play while I was convalescing, laying in bed. I heard outside the window my first concert, my first applause, and uh, he stood up and I looked out. I was I thought I was hearing things, you know. I thought it was the angels clapping before they took me off to heaven. And he stood up and walked in the room and he hugged me and he said, "I want you to promise me two things: one, you'll get better, and two, you record those songs for me so I can listen to them in my car. I was so touched, you know. He can't he flew all the way from New York to North Florida to to, to try to lift my spirits. Um, you know, you don't get friends like that very often. That that sort of like gave me an excuse to live. You know, like someone loves me that much, and I knew there were a couple of people that did. Uh, I was pretty difficult to get along with that at that point. I think I had personality disorder issues, and uh, you know, I was struggling mentally. Uh, for someone to say, you know, keep living was important. So I, I ended up recording those songs. Uh, on, I had a Fostex four-track. Do you remember those? Yeah. Four-track tape recorder, and I, I had hauled it around all over the place and dropped it, and sound only came out of one of the outputs. So it was it was mono, in the extreme.
0: <laughs> did it record onto a cassette?
1: Yeah, it recorded onto a cassette. Uh, yeah, so I did this recording for him of these songs. And and sent it to him. Well, he liked it, and nobody liked what I did usually. Um, people were interested in what I did, but they didn't feel like I like this. They were more like, "That's, like, that's an interesting creature behind those bars at the zoo." And that's kind of how I felt. I felt like a specimen much much of those years. So he gave it to his girlfriend out in L.A. We lived in L.A. at that point. She gave it to her best friend, who was Joe Henry's wife, Melanie Chaconi, and uh, she contacted me, and you know I was in real bad psychological shape i'd had a series of crazy things like spooky stuff happening to me like occult stuff happening to me that was it was like i was living in a movie and i I had aimed my life at trying to be like living in a movie and then i realized oh movies aren't that much fun if you're actually in them (laughs) they're a lot more fun if you're watching them um i was a character in a really bad movie and so i assumed that she was a character in a really bad movie this lady contacted me who said she was in the music business. She was Daniel Lanois' manager, married to Joe Henry. And so I assumed that she was just a character in a movie and that what would she do? And since I was thinking dark thoughts, I thought, well, she's probably going to try to kill me. <laughs> so, so uh, you know.
0: You really thought that?
1: It seemed like a high likelihood. I, th- I figured, yeah, she's going to lure me a hotel in Wisconsin and kill me. Uh, that was a, a thought that I held for a long time. And she kept writing me saying, and calling me and saying, you know, you really have a talent, you need to, to take that out in the world, and what if I got you a, a show at the Viper Lounge where Johnny Depp hung out, and I was like, well, okay, this is really a story. This is really, I'm in a really weird movie, and David Lynch is going to show up pretty soon. But David Lynch never showed up. She uh, he just kept encouraging me, and um, finally, you know, she she said send the, send tapes to Sony and Matador and Mammoth and Capitol Records. And I was sending these cassette tapes with sound only coming out of one speaker that I recorded in in my kitchen. You know, beating on a tin can to to make the drum sound and singing through a Pepsi bottle because I cut a Pepsi bottle in half because I thought it sounded cool uh you know one of those two liter bottles i sang to that i didn't know anything about effects or anything i didn't play in a band ever i played guitar 20 years by myself alone so it seems so funny i thought i thought well this movie's turning into a comedy it's it's now a comedy i'm sending my tape to to Capitol records and they of course are going to love it (laughs) and uh so i sent out 10 tapes and one by one they came back to me with this very uh uniform stamp they all had the same stamp i guess from the same "fuck you company and (laughs) which which the stamp said unsolicited material return unopened so i got nine back and i thought what's the who who hadn't sent me one back yet who who, who's pondering over this insanity and turned out it was warner brothers so i thought huh warner brothers that's like the biggest one And I thought, probably it's just filtering its way through people's desks, and they're all laughing at it as it goes by. And finally, the letter from Warner Brothers came. And the letter, I'll never forget the words. It was very concise. Uh, The letter said, Dear Sir, we have received your tape and listened to it. We feel the material is very weak. We have no interest in having any further contact with you. Please do not contact us again. I thought, okay, that's the end of that movie. (laughs) <laughs> that movie's over. I'll call the lady who was supposed to stab me, but turned out to be a you know Harry Met Sally funny lady, and I'll I'll let her know. And then I thought, no, that'd that'd disappoint her, so I just didn't call her or anything. I figured she'd just go away, but she didn't. She was very tenacious, and uh, she called me about two weeks later and said, "What well, you know? I haven't heard from you. What happened? Did you send the tapes out?" And I said, "Yeah, I did." And she said, well, what happened? And I said, well, they all sent them back saying they wouldn't listen to them. And I had her name right on the, you know, like I wrote it in big letters on the outside of the envelope. Melanie Ciccone said, send this, because she was, you know, famous in the music business. She was like, well, nobody liked it. And I said, well, not only did nobody like it, let me tell you what Warner Brothers said. And uh, I thought she was just misguided, you know. Maybe she had some kind of mothering thing that she wanted to She knew I was, I was suicidal. Maybe she was trying to help me keep from killing myself. I don't know. And uh, I told her what Warner Brothers said, and she was livid. She was ready to go in there and kill those people. And she said, I am going to find you a record deal, and we are going to prove those people wrong. Stay tuned. And she hung up the phone. And she called me back an hour later and said, send a tape to this address. And she gave me LaWakabop Records uh, on, I guess they were on 12th Street or something like that. And I said, I never heard of that record label. Who is it? And she said, it's David Byrne. Now, I just won a Pushcart Prize. You know what that is? Pushcart Prize is a prize for literary achievement in a short story form. It's almost its like one of the highest literary awards you can get for, for this story. Because I had had this weird parallel universe existence with David Byrne for about 15 years. There were was, was strange things happening. Strange things can happen to you if you push yourself to the edge of the world and teeter-totter there. If um, you stay in the, in, the, in the safe area, weird shit doesn't happen to you much. But if you go to the edge where the winds are blowing you one way or the other, and one way is you know a sure fall into the abyss of insanity, and the, the other way is, you know okay, maybe I'll have a, a semi-David Lynch life, uh, that's where I was. So uh, to kind of cover the backstory of that, I, people when I moved to New York City, and I'm, I'm sort of an alienated, somewhat crazy white guy who looks like David Byrne. And people kept mistaking me for him there. Um, I was uh, coming out of a Pentecostal background, and um, when I was moving to New York, I thought I need to get a good-looking suit. So I went to St. Vincent de Paul because I thought I'd be working in an office or something when I got to New York went to St. Vincent de Paul. And the only suit that would fit me because I'm tall and skinny was this big white suit. And so I'd wear that around New York City. and, and, And people would like smile at me in this way that no one had ever smiled at me in my life. And they would like, I could see them watching me. And I was so puzzled by it. Because I was trying to shake off all the Pentecostal stuff, I was going to weird punk rock bars and stuff. And like King Tut's Wawa Hut and the pyramid, these famous East Village epicenters of decadence. So I'd go there and I'd try to learn how to dance and get drunk. Because I didn't know how to do either one of those things. Because I was 30 years old, 28 years old, and I'd never been I'd been i I'd been a fundamentalist Christian for a long time and, and never never done any of those things. And so I'd start dancing, and the, all these hip people would come up to me, like the people that snubbed me. Most of the time, they'd come up to me and they'd start doing this chopping thing on their arm. (laughs) And I'd think, are they asking me to dance? What is this? And so I'd start doing it back to them and they'd get really excited and all their friends would come over and we'd all be chopping on our arms. And I had no idea what was going on. And a month or two into this phenomenon, I was was walking on 8th Street. There was a movie theater there and there was a, a big poster of me on the wall. And I uh, stopped. It's like, well, what, what is that? And then I saw that it was David Byrne in a movie called Stop Making Sense, a Jonathan Demme film, Stop Making Sense. So I thought, wow, he and I look identical. So I, I went into the movie theater to watch the movie, and then I saw him doing the dance with the chopping on the arm, and I got really mad. I thought, those people did not like the way I danced. They just thought they were dancing with David Byrne, <laughs> not some crazy mentally ill cab driver. They thought, and I went home and I threw the suit away. I was so mad. A couple years later, uh, I, was, I got accepted to NYU. Uh, I just kind of bluffed my way into this major university. At that point, because you're you know you're crazy and you're teeter tottering on the edge of the world, you have a certain charm and attraction because you're you're the tightrope walker. So uh, I I walked into the NYU and there was you know all of these formal people who were dealing with sane, stable individuals, and I I, I might have been interesting to them as an art school. So they they accepted me and gave me a scholarship. It's pretty cool. And uh, I was I, I took a riding class first time I'd ever been in in real a real interesting, fertile, educational environment. Took this writing class and started writing short stories that I really enjoyed. And the the best writer in the class was uh, a lady named Jane Malloy. She was uh, an African-American woman, just self-determined, funny from the South, you know, a a mix of intellectual and earthy. And she was just, man, I, I thought she was the cat's pajamas. And one night, halfway through the course, I had a dream, uh, You know, I have a sleep disorder, so I dream constantly. You know, I I go in and out of REM sleep all night long. It's exhausting. I'm more tired when I wake up in the morning than when I go to sleep. And uh, I had this dream that Jane Malloy was talking to me, and she turned into a bulldozer, like a big, giant yellow bulldozer. And I climbed up inside, and I started driving her towards a swamp. And we, as we were disappearing into the swamp and the muck and the mire, I jumped out and, and sludged my way back to the shore. And, um, I, you know, I wake up constantly. So I woke up right after the dream and I thought, oh, I have to tell Jane about that dream. So I saw her the next day in school and said, oh, I got to tell you about this dream I had. You were a bulldozer and I drove you into a swamp. And I jumped off and swam back to shore and you disappeared.
0: <laughs> Did it frighten her?
1: She uh well she was she was a very tough, self-determined woman. She said, honey, don't have no more dreams about me. <laughs> so I you know, I felt incredibly embarrassed, you know, like I thought, oh, this is my personality disorder doing crazy stuff again. And I've alienated this one person in the class that I really admire. So I I, I had I started, you know, groveling and apologizing. And I said, I'm so sorry that I that I say stupid things. Uh, Jane, it's because I'm I'm just too white. She said, you what? And I said, I'm, I'm too white. See, I want to be cool like you're cool and like Don Cherry's cool. Uh, I want to be cool like that, but I don't know how, and if I try to act cool, I become more pathetically white. And so what I've decided to do, Jane, because I've been thinking about this whole issue of cool and not cool, what I've decided to do, Jane, is... I'm going to give up trying to ever reach cool because I'm going to have to walk through so much white to get to cool that I'll be dead by the time I get to cool. So I'm just going to turn and go the opposite direction and go further into white and become really, really white. And maybe if I get white enough, some act of grace will take place and I will be cool. And she's real smart. She said, oh, you mean like that Jungian thing, etinchondria or whatever. There was this big word. And, 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 and I said, what's that? she said, that's where you take a logical quality to its most extreme, and it becomes transfigurational. And I said, wow, yes, that's my only hope for, for finding peace in this world. And she said, so let me get this straight then. I think what you're trying to do is become super white. And as soon as she said the word super white, David Byrne's face appeared in my mind. There it was. He was super white, and that's that's why our our lives kept intersecting because he was doing the same thing. He was becoming so white that he was cool, but he was way further down the road than me. Uh, but I realized, okay, I found my exemplar. It's that guy. It's that guy who chops on his arm and sings about burning down his house. I'm burning down my house too, in a way, you know. I'm bur- We're both burning down our houses to be free of. You know, the, the 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 burdens that have been placed on us through through no fault of our own. So I thought, wow, if I ever see that guy, I'm just going to walk up to him and just cool as a cucumber. I'm going to say, "Super white," and he'll know. If the universe is a fair place, if the universe, if there's any order or logic in the universe, he'll know. A week later, driving the taxi, I was a taxi driver. That's how I paid my way through school. There he was. He walked in front of my cab uh, on, in Soho, and he turned the corner onto to uh, Washington Place or something, his head down to Washington Square Park, and I thought, well, this is my chance, and uh, I cut my own hair, you know. I, always, I was too poor to uh, afford haircuts, so I had this clipper, and, you know, they have those attachments on them. Well, about two weeks before, the I was cutting my hair, and the, t- the attachment popped off, and I went straight down to Scalp, and uh, so the only thing to do was to cut the other side the same way. So I started shaving and shaving and shaving, and I'm not real good at it. And I ended up giving myself sort of a de facto mohawk. So I had—I looked like Travis Bickle, and and I was certainly as crazy as Travis Bickle, but not in a, in a in a hostile way. I was sort of innocent crazy. So I I turned the corner, not really thinking about the whole picture cab driver with a mohawk following a celebrity and and got behind him he was just walking along at a steady pace on the sidewalk and so i was pacing him in the cab about you know three miles an hour and uh he kind of looked over his shoulder and saw a cab fall on him and he looked over again i was looking very intently at him i was trying to figure out how we how what our deep connection was so he picked up his pace a little bit <laughs> and i picked up my pace a little bit and i thought well the, the, this is the time. This is the time. So I rolled down the window, and I put, put my head out the window so that he could see that we, we were brothers. And, and, and I shouted,
0: Super White!
1: <laughs> at the top of my lungs. It didn't come out like I wanted. I wanted David Niven to say Super White, but, you know. Cowboy Bob Kelly shouted Super White. This <laughs> Southern wrestler, And... uh he increased his, his pace rapidly at that point. <laughs> so I started chasing him, shouting super white, super white, super white. And he eventually ran, sought refuge in a store. I'll never forget, because I was outside kind of half in and out, half out of the cab. He was my lifeline, basically, to a world that made sense. And he was peering out at me through the, the window. Super, I was shouting super white, and he was probably thinking... Where's the phone so I can call nine one one, and I, I just felt like I, I felt crestfallen because it di- it didn't make sense to him, and I was just a crazy guy in a cab, you know, and I drove away. I was so ashamed, you know, so sad and heartbroken that there wasn't any justice in the universe. So there, Melanie Ciacconi is saying, send send your crappy little tape of your mentally ill songs with sound that only comes out of one speaker, to David Byrne. And, uh, and uh, I started laughing really hard. I thought, well, this movie just got more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't tell her, because I thought she'd think I'm completely crazy, because you've just heard the story. You realize that sounds like a, a delusional story. So... I sent the tape. And I, you know, at that point everything made sense. You know, it all made sense. The universe was working like it should. So I sent this tape to one of the most coveted boutique labels in the world. And I did not put a return address on it. I didn't put anything other than four words. Melanie said send this. Melanie said send this. <laughs> I had drawn this picture of uh, angels carrying a uh, body off to uh, heaven. Uh, it's very crude. I, I, I do a lot of artwork, and I'd drawn it as the cover. Um, I can't remember what the what the name of it was. It was a funny name, something to do with redemption. And I sent it off to this deluxe fashion label, basically, you know, known for their impeccable taste in music. And I laughed and thought, well, I wonder what will happen with this part of the movie. This is, you know, and. Sure enough, two weeks later, she called me and she said, hey, you don't know much about business, do you? And I said, no. And she said, why didn't you put a return address on that tape? And I said, uh, I didn't see any point in it. And then I thought about it a second. And I said, how does she know that? Because the only way she would know that is if they, they contact her. So I said, did they talk to you? And she said, oh, yeah, they just called me. They need to talk to you. But, uh, okay, all right, I know what it is. They're going to ask me, like, to paint their bathroom or something like that. Because <laughs> they, they hear that I'm clearly not a, a good musician. Uh, so they're going to ask me to, like, haul garbage out of their basement or, you know, because that's the kind of jobs I was doing when I wasn't cab driving. So I called the guy that ran the label, a very terse guy. Just he's, He speaks in shortwave. So I said, hi, uh, I'm that guy that's friends with Melanie Ciccone. And he goes, great, when can you come in? I said, how about now? And he said, see you in five. Here's the address. And gave it to me. So I'm thinking at this point, you know, I, I still was kind of thinking this was like she was going to lure me to a motel somewhere and kill me and that this was, that my tape really wasn't going to record labels. And I just, I was very distrustful that anything good could happen to me. So I went to the label and, and, and walked in just bewildered. The chances, the, the unlikelihood of me being there was very high, and the chances of being, being legitimate were very low. And, uh, you know, I told the receptionist, I'm here to see Yale Evelev, the guy who runs the label. And she said, uh-huh, who are you? It's like boutique label with beautiful women dancing through the hallways and stuff. You know, I, I hadn't been on a date in five years, and I, you know, nobody want, no woman wanted to talk to me because I was so crazy. Particularly, Jay Malloy, um, and I thought this is just surreal. And she went in the back, and Yale Evlev didn't come out. David Byrne came out. He came trotting down the hall, just about the speed when I was chasing him uh, three or four years earlier, and grabbed my hand, shook it profusely, and said, "Wow, what an honor to meet you! Wow, you were a really great songwriter. Hey, man, how great!" And then he turned away from me with his head. It was The back of his head was about three inches from my face at this point. And that's, what, what just occurred was one of the greatest inversions of all time. The guy who had been on the cover of Time magazine for his music had said to the mentally ill cab driver the words that the mentally ill cab driver should have said to the guy on the cover of Time magazine. <laughs> he, turned his, he turned away from me as if I just wasn't there and said to the beautiful woman, hey, is there any good mail for me? And she said, yes, David. And she handed him a bunch of mail and he sat there reading the mail like as if he'd forgotten about me. And I thought, this guy's crazy. <laughs> and then I thought, good, that's good. We do have something in common. So I stared at the back of his head for the longest time while he read the mail. And then I just kind of sat down in a chair and after five minutes of reading the mail, he turned around at me and he said, hey, what do you think about pedal steel on your on your uh, record? And I... I just stared at him. I said, What record? He said, The record we're going to make. And then he walked away. <laughs> it was like a Saturday Night's, Night Live skit or something. It was so weird. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And I thought, When, when do I tell him about Super White? When do I tell him? Do I do it now? When do I do it? Because I knew that I had to tell him about it. And uh, then the label head guy, Yale, comes in. He takes me back to his office, and, and there's stacks and stacks of professionally created submissions in CD form, which was a new form back then. Uh, there was, there was five-foot-high stacks, maybe thousands of CDs of people with a sign over it that said submissions. And sitting on his desk was my crazy little cassette tape with sound that only came out of one speaker and angels carrying a dead body off to heaven. And it, I remember looking at it and thinking... You know, that, that is a surreal object in this room. It, it, it is not part of this continuum. Um, and he started talking to me. He was, he was much more guarded. He's not open like David is. He said, well, you know, we really like what you're doing, and uh, we are very interested in talking about making a record with you. And I'd never played a show live anywhere. I'd never played music with another person. Uh, I didn't know there was such a thing as conventional tuning on a guitar. And as I said, I was singing through Pepsi bottles and beating on tin cans. Um, I thought, I need to tell him the super white story so he understands why this is important. And something kept stopping me. So finally, I didn't tell anybody the super white story. I just listened to all of it. First time in my life I've ever shown discretion uh, and restraint. And I listened to all of it, and then I walked out the door. And I went, went, went home to my little dismal studio apartment in the East Village. And I called my sister who uh, teaches law. She's a very bright person. She writes textbooks on law. And I, I told her the whole story. And she she's always worried about my mental health. Uh, and, and she was aghast at some of the things that I had not let her know. Because quite frequently when you're mentally ill, you don't tell anybody about it because you're afraid it will scare them or hurt them. Or, and at the end, I said, I need to tell him the super white story so that he understands how important this is. And my sister, the lawyer said, listen to me carefully. Under no circumstances will you tell him the super white story until you have a signed contract in your hand. (laughs) And you know what? For the first time in like 10 years, I felt grounded. I knew where I was. I knew where they were. I knew where everything was in the universe. And my job was very simple. I had this exotic bird of my craziness, and I knew how to use it. I knew when to employ it and how to employ it. And so I didn't tell him. I did, I just didn't tell him. Uh, we we signed the contract after a, 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 record, record labels court people. For a year, they tried to figure out if I was too crazy to to work with. And I sort of passed all the tests in really strange ways. I didn't do it normally, like... Uh, eventually they they signed they signed me to a label, and um, uh, I told David then, and he just laughed and he said, "Oh, that happens to me all the time don 't worry about it not, not only did he, he sign me, but he befriended me. Um, I guess you know he, he, he felt an empathy for a person who was struggling, so despite the fact that I had never performed anywhere, despite the fact that i wasn 't a, a good performer. I, I didn't know how to sing. I didn't know how to organize a band. He decided I should open for him for a year and a half. So, for a year and a half, anywhere he went, I went, <laughs> which is, you know, pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. Um, These are probably big crowds, too, were not they? Thousands of people. Thousands of people. You know, I, I went from having no one ever heard me to playing in the biggest. Uh, Coliseum in Portugal, and boy, it sure had the shine of redemption on it. When, when you've had real severe problems where you felt like you weren't going to make it, finding your f- a foothold is a powerful experience that 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 gives you a, a type of fuel that very few people have. Um, at a certain point, we played in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, and it was weird being back in that area where so much defeat had, had visited me and, and so much trouble. And we were on the tour bus, and everyone else was asleep, and we had a long drive to get to New Orleans, and we passed through my town, Pensacola. And now I remember looking out the window, watching the town go by at 65 miles an hour, and I was doing nothing. I was being carried. The, the bus felt like a vehicle of grace. And I watched the town go by, and and thought about all my struggles there. And it just felt it felt like some sort of symbolic act by the universe. You are no longer having to drive your bus because, thankfully, you would drive it into the swamp. Like <laughs> Jane will <Jane> always <laughs> 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 so, Someone else is taking care of you. A, a larger force is taking care of you. And from that point on, I could I could go home without feeling the weight and complexity of of. When I returned home, the time before that, it was—I felt like I was to die. It was a very redemptive feeling, and—and and, you know, for all those people that are struggling, you know, find find your path of redemption and grab it by the throat and don't let go.
0: Man, I appreciate you uh, meeting me here in this hotel room. I think they're about to kick us out of here. I
1: think they are. Yeah.
0: It's beautiful to see you again. <laughs>
1: Likewise, Otis. We got to do another one of those shows where you tell some more of those stories.
0: There we go. I'll do that. I'll do that.
1: I tell you, I, I repeat those stories. You know, I, I know a lot of stories. I know a lot of stories. <laughs> I very seldom tell someone else's story. I tell, I tell yours all the time.
0: Oh, God, Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for, this is really sweet.
0: I'd like to thank everybody for listening in and I'd like to thank Jim for meeting up with me at a hotel room here in Nashville you can find out everything you need to know about Jim at jimwhite.net if you'd like to help support this show just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt you can download any record I've ever made you can buy one of my photographic prints you can buy one of Amy's records you can buy one of Amy's children's books But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out, but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show or you enjoy my music or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.